Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Strength in Recovery podcast. I'm here with Tom Seward. He is an alum of our Bracebridge Hall location, and um, it is a beautiful facility. Can you tell me in Earlville, Maryland, but Tom, tell us um, on the map, like, where is that? Where are you? <laughs> um, yeah, I think we're at the top of the eastern shore um, of, you know, the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. But um, Bracebridge Hall, I think I think they have roughly 600 acres or something here. It's a massive property. Um, they're right on the Sassafras River. Or is it the Bohemia River or the Sassafras River? I don't know. It's a gorgeous property. It's very beautiful, remote Cecil County. Nothing but farms around here and water, um, mostly. A real gorgeous place. It sure is. Very conducive to, I mean, it's peaceful. It's a a good spot for, you know, for someone to start their journey of recovery. Absolutely. Um, Tell us a little bit about how you got connected to Bracebridge. Okay. Well, full disclosure, I'm a little nervous. Um, (laughs) It's funny. I was just having a conversation with some friends before we started. I've come to accept, I've learned in my recovery that everything that makes me grow today requires discomfort. That's the price I pay. So I'm uncomfortable a lot today. Um, And I'm just really grateful. You know, 20 months ago, I was a patient here and I wanted to die. Um, And today my life has just changed so dramatically. I mean, it's, I think miraculous is a fitting word. And, um, you know, 20 months ago, nobody was asking me to appear on podcasts. I can assure you that. And um, I'm asked to speak, to share my story at meetings a lot today. Next month, I'm going on vacation. I'm taking 10, 10 days off of work, going on vacation to Washington State um, with my friend and sponsor. Um, my life is just so much different today, and it's amazing. Um, I've worked here now for 14 months. I started as an RSS. Um, when I left treatment this last time, I changed everything about my life. I decided to take all the suggestions, and uh, I arrived at pl- I arrived there out of desperation. I didn't do anything special. I was just so desperate and in so much pain and contemplating suicide again that I recognized I needed to come back to treatment. Um, And it was really funny that I was calling and they told me they had no beds available. And I ended up reaching out to Vince in the middle of the night and he made a bed appear for me. And I'm really grateful for that. And my life changed. Um, People who don't know Vince, Vince Douglas is a senior alumni treatment advocate and um, just a real force at Bracebridge Hall. And he's been a blessing to our team and really helps a lot of people um, get into recovery and get into treatment. And um, so that, I, I don't know. What do you, do you want to say anything about Vince? While well, I love that man for one, um, ever since, you know, he was an employee here and he was like a good mentor for me. But then once I, I left here this last time and moved into our sober living, the one I now manage. I was the second resident to ever live there, so it's special to me. I've kind of come full circle. The house means a lot to me, but I was the second resident there. I attended our PHP and our IOP, completed them here, got a home group, got a sponsor, started working steps, doing all the things, you know, that had been suggested to me for years, and my life started getting better. Um, I have never missed a day. I've never called out. I've never been a second late, and for me, that is my track record. That is atypical. Like that is not consistent with my track record. I was unemployable my whole life and not because I didn't want to be employed, but I just could not. I screwed up everything everywhere. I I could not. I just could not get anything right. And the addiction was the source of my problems, but I did not recognize that at the time. And I was I spent most of my life trying to arrange my 
trying to manipulate external variables, trying to arrange my outside world to fix my insides. And, you know, it took me a very long time to realize that I have to fix my internal condition, you know, work on my spiritual condition and the outside falls into place. But um, I guess I'm I'm just very grateful today. So I I have my job, which means a lot to me. I discovered purpose. I found purpose, um, which I never had. I drifted through life aimlessly. And that always frustrated me because I have I've been very blessed and I've had a decent education. I have talents and abilities and I had no passion, no ambition, no drive. And I I couldn't get anything right. I couldn't hold down a job. I had no follow through on anything. And my life is just so different today. I have so much um, trust and support from my employer from Bracebridge. I have minimal supervision. Like I have a great deal of trust and autonomy. And that is from you know, doing the next right thing from demonstrating that I'm trustworthy and dependable. And that's all, I believe, the grace of a loving God, the program. I work Alcoholics Anonymous, but working a program of recovery with a sponsor and the fellowship I found in the rooms and, you know, the recovery community at large. Um, But my life was just transformed. And, you know, going on vacation, I was never able to do that. I couldn't save money. I couldn't pay my bills. And I just had no time. I mean, Everything else got in the way of my drinking and use. I couldn't have relationships, no real meaningful relationships. Um, Yeah, I couldn't hold down the job. I wasn't doing service work for anybody because I had to focus on getting what I needed. Um, You know, I had no kind of no kind of spiritual world at all. No higher power. No, uh, you know, I was just so lost. And um, I don't know, just kind of uh, rambling now. But my life is just so and I'm grateful. It's actually really funny. I guess I wanted to get to the importance of um, like planting seeds, all the help I've received over the years. Like we can, I think we can't afford to underestimate the, um, you know, how important it is um, to plant a seed because uh, so many people tried to help me over the years, even when I didn't want it. And, you know, uh, I was in a meeting last weekend and there was a woman, she is sober, but she was struggling because her husband that was at home drinking. And, um, I was able to let her know that I met her in that same meeting a few years prior and I was drunk and I was crying and I wanted to die. And she was very kind to me. And I remembered that. And I've never forgotten that. And little things like that. Like if she had treated me different that day, I might not be here today. So like my story is full of things like that too. So I'm just really grateful. Yeah. All of those moments. Yeah. So I've fallen. Well, we can discuss this more, but you know, it talks about it in our literature, this program has transformed, you know, my biggest weakness into my biggest asset. It's only only because of my addiction and my recovery that I'm able to help anybody, that anybody wants to hear what I have to say. You know, um, I can see. I can start to appreciate that it wasn't all for nothing. I can see the dots connecting in my life, seeing how even the, um, you know, like the long version of the serenity pr- uh, prayer mentions accepting hardship as the pathway to peace. I can see how it was all for my benefit, how things weren't happening to me. They were happening for me. And frankly, most of the hardship in my life was my creation. So, and the power of testimony, like yeah, for sure, something now that you take away from that that is beneficial to yeah. others because yeah. it, it's hard for people. There's something very powerful, and I think what the alumni association does, and and what we do as peer mentors, and and that peer to peer relationship. When you know somebody's been where you've been, they've been through what you've been through, 
whether it's grief or whether it's addiction or whether it's uh, mental health issues or what all the things that that uh, we as humans go through there's just that that connection that instant okay I can trust there's a trust that's built oh yeah and I can listen to this guy because he knows what it's like yeah I can remember my first exposure to meetings a very long time ago years ago they were always helpful to me I mean it, it was I could connect I could relate you know I felt like they were telling my story but um you know, it's only after this last time in treatment that I really got all in. I, I don't know. For me personally, I had no success dancing on the periphery of recovery. Like you have to be all in, like one foot in, one foot out did not work for me. I had to be fully committed. It is like the primary focus of my life. And now the things I had to do for recovery that I didn't necessarily want to do, they've just become my life. I like it now. There are days, exceptions, where I might not want to go to a meeting one day. Um, but for the most part, I love what I do. You know, I've met, I have a lot of friends now. I've met so many beautiful people on this journey. Um, yeah, I have a speaking commitment no, now at Impatient, which I is great. I think that's like the, the transformation too. It's like with any any discipline or any um, habit that we incorporate into our lives, there's going to be days when we're really excited and motivated to do it. And then there's going to be other days where we do it because we know this is the right thing to do, whether we like it or not. Right. And I think there's a growth mindset in that. Like that is true. When I made a commitment to do, when I left treatment this last time and I decided I made the commitment to take suggestions, I, I made that commitment completely. So yeah, sometimes it's discipline. I do what I have to do. It's, Today, I'm responsible for my disease, right? It's like a, a diabetic. I use, you know, that's a good good example that everyone will understand. Like once a diabetic, you know, it's not their fault they're born with that disease. But once they have been educated on the medications they have to take, the diet they have to follow, um, you know, testing their blood sugar, like they are then responsible. And if they choose not to address their disease, then they they have to be willing to accept the consequences. And that's the same today for my recovery. I know there's no more delusion or no more denial. I know exactly what does it, what my disease is. I know what it requires. I, I need daily treatment for my disease. And if I don't do it, I, you know, the consequences, you know, it's my fault. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I made that commitment. And to be honest, working at the house, it's funny. I worked about two months as an RSS and then I was given the opportunity to manage the house and it was a bit overwhelming. I had never done that before. It's a house full of personalities. I was in early recovery myself. Um, they, the clients were folks in early recovery and maybe, um, you know, still had a long way to go. Um, Talk a little bit about early recovery and, and we have a lot of people that listen to this podcast who are in early recovery or their family members trying to understand people in early recovery. And, um, I think we've learned more about post-acute withdrawal syndrome, pause, um, and, and how, you know. 30 days in, in a treatment center or, you know, a a quick detox isn't, hasn't necessarily healed the brain and, um, heal some symptoms. So talk a little bit about that. All right. So I'll try to remember your points for one. I'd like to say, cause I experienced this myself for anyone who is like a, well, for an addict or alcoholic, maybe it's their first time in treatment or for any family members, there is no cure. Like I, I had my own father when I left treatment after 30 days, he said, you're all better. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I said, no, absolutely not. Um, and so 
I say that when I share here for people who are here for the first time in treatment, there's, you know, you're not going to be cured after 30 days. You are just getting started. This is barely scratching the surface. Um, for me, I was treated with kindness here. I wasn't judged. I was shown compassion. You know, the people here loved me so I could love myself. I was given the medical care, detox, uh, fed, but um, I was just getting the drugs and alcohol out of my system and learning a little bit, but it's just a, a bare beginning. Like it is mm-hmm. rehab is just the start. Um, and for me, it is true for me, what they say in our recovery literature, like in the, in the big book or in the program of NA for me, my drinking and drug use is a symptom. Mm-hmm. It is not, it is not the problem itself. Um, it was the solution to the disease I had until it, you know, until it didn't work. And then I couldn't live with alcohol and drugs and couldn't live without them. And they no longer gave me any relief or comfort. So for me, I'm learning more about myself as the time goes on. Um, I think, you know, I think from a physical perspective, like I think there is a maybe a genetic predisposition and there's probably with chronic use or chronic drinking, there's probably a threshold you cross maybe where my body, where I lose that power to control how much I drink or drug. But if I never pick up that first one, that's not an issue. My -hmm. problem also, it's not just that I have a drinking and drug problem. I had a sobriety problem, a living problem. My emotions, I was emotionally immature. Um, I had a horrible relationship with myself. Um, that I was, you know, you hear it a lot in, in meetings. People say they never felt comfortable in their own skin. They felt um, different. I always felt less than. I had some, um, what do you call it, uh, an inferiority complex. And there were some some events that happened. My life wasn't especially traumatic, but everyone experiences trauma. Um, I got in a car accident as a seven-year-old. My face went through a windshield and I knocked some adult teeth out. So I had fake teeth as a kid that caused me to be self-conscious and insecure. I had a brother that bullied me relentlessly. Um, My parents were stressed out, overworked, impatient. I was learned you don't ask for help because you get yelled at, you know what I mean? And men on my side of the family were raised to be stoic. And obviously, well, not obviously, but that's that is beginning to change. It's becoming more acceptable for men to have feelings and voice them and stuff. But like the men in my family grew up in a time where you just suck it up and, you know, you just do what you got to do and you don't, you know, you don't talk about your feelings. So, you know, we did not talk about feelings. I did not ask for help. Um, I learned to hide things and be sneaky because I didn't want to get in trouble. These behaviors. I was already very troubled long before I put a drink or drug in my body. So Mm -hmm. I believe there are certain things that, you know, I was using the alcohol and drugs to medicate and I didn't realize it then. Um, my working theory lately is um, I used to, as a kid, I was incredibly anxious and then I never knew what that was. I would bite my fingernails till they bled. Like a few years ago, I was able to stop biting my nails, but I had that habit my whole life. So what I think is as a kid, I was so uncomfortable, but that's the only way I had ever felt. So I had no frame of reference. And then once I started altering my consciousness, there was relief. So I think I was doing anything to not feel like me. And um, I can distinctly remember a time where I would alter my consciousness. That was with marijuana at the time. I felt as though I could not be sober. Like I would do anything to not be sober again. Do you remember that first use, the first? It wasn't the very first use. I do remember the first use, but it wasn't the very first use, but it was very early on as like an adolescent or young teenager where I would put a substance in my body and I did not want to go back to my normal state. And I, I started displaying Behaviors that are uncommon um, to obtain money for marijuana. I was stealing. I was breaking into houses, like 
once I really started to lose control. Um, From what age is this happening? Yeah, so I'll run down. Um, like 12 or 13. I started smoking pot when I was 12, I think. Um, and was it just accessible? You had ac- Yes, yeah, some kids on my, I was playing youth football. I lived in Claymont, Delaware at the time. And some kids on my youth football team, um, some friends of mine told me they could get it. And I think part of it was at the time wanting to be cool. Something I've always, that's been another part of it. And I doubt I'm the only one. Something, there's a mystique to doing you know, the rebellious thing or doing what is a, the ta- taboo thing. There was something attractive to me about being rebellious or being defiant. And most of us are defiant in the extreme. Um, so it started with marijuana. You know, I got caught a couple times and, you know, took breaks because I was afraid of getting caught. I, um, I think I drank for the first time when I was 12 or 13 as well. My brother and I got drunk at a friend's house, got into my friend's mom's refrigerator and we drank beer, but I honestly, I did not like alcohol the first time it made, I had already tried marijuana and alcohol made me feel nauseous. And, um, we ended up getting in trouble, getting caught and getting in trouble. And I didn't really start drinking again. I was smoking marijuana, you know, here and there and, um, drinking very little. But then when, when I hit high school, things got really bad, I would say. So I, um, I was in private school at the time. I should tell you, I have, uh, my parents got divorced when I was young. So I have half siblings from my mother and then I'm my father's only child. So I was living with my father in Claymont and he was sending me to private school, Caravel Academy in Bear, Delaware. And I hated it. And then in ninth grade, the opportunity arose for me to move in with my mom in Elkton and go to Northeast high with my siblings. Um, Mm -hmm. so I jumped at that opportunity and, you know, I met a small group of friends like me that were kind of outcasts or whatever we found. I found my group um, and we were s- smoking marijuana, um, but I was still playing sports. I was going to school. I was playing football. I wrestled and things were pretty good. But um, I don't I don't really know. My men- I would drink here and there, too, like at parties, just socially. But, you know, off the rip. Immediately, I drank. I drank to get drunk, and every time I drank, it was too much, and I was sick. It was a problem immediately, but I didn't particularly enjoy it. But I would do it to fit in. But the marijuana, I had to be high all the time, and my mental health too started to um, deteriorate in high school. And just slowly, I started, you know, started doing more of what I wanted to do. If I didn't want to be in school, I didn't go. As you you look back, is there, you know, maybe somebody's listening, and, and they've they've got a kid, and they've noticed man, this guy's on the wrong track. Uh, you know, he's, he's, his friend group is difficult. Maybe he's starting some marijuana use. Is there anything that could have helped you at that time? I don't really know. Cause for a long time, you know, people tried to help me and I just wasn't hearing it. The denial was so strong and I was so delusional and I could not see it. I mean, the signs were as clear as day, but everyone, everyone else was the problem. So just leave me alone and let me do what I needed to do. Like I, I could not accept that I was the problem. And that's funny. Um, cause you know, you learn that in recovery. I was, I was the problem or I was involved in everything bad that happened to me. And, um, yeah, it was never about the out, you know, it's not just, it's very important that I don't, don't drink or drug because I'm powerless over them, but it's not really about the alcohol or drugs, you know, like today. Yeah, I have to keep that fresh in my mind, you know, um, 
complacency kills. I have to remember I cannot drink or drug, but my energy is not dedicated to not drinking or drugging. That obsession, that compulsion has been removed. I'm trying to develop spiritually and be the most, you know, I'm trying to find out what I'm capable of. I spent my whole life destroying myself and hamstring. Yeah. And it's great because you were discussing the pause for months after I got out of treatment and moved into the house. You know, I would be in the middle of a task and completely space out and I would look around for clues and then I would see something that would remind me of what I was doing. And now, like my workload and the things I'm capable of juggling and the stress I can handle, it's impressive. And, you know, I have my weak moments, obviously, but I really genuinely want to see what I'm capable of doing, you know, what I'm capable of becoming. If I stay out of my own way, I was in my own way the whole time. And I thank God for, for saving me from myself. But you know, I'm continue. I want to keep growing professionally and spiritually and personally. I'm starting to. I'm still. I'm still uncomfortable with people. I'm learning that. Like I mentioned, everything requires discomfort because nothing changes if nothing changes. So learning how to socialize without depending on drugs and alcohol. Um, I mean, comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah, this and the speaking commitments I do, and um, or when life just goes bad. Like a few months ago, I watched my grandfather die. Watched him die. But I was sober and I was there to be supportive of my family and my hope my family was there and it was as peaceful as it could have been. And I would not have been there if I was drinking or using I, um, my, you know, I don't care. I'm not a materialistic guy. I don't care about money beyond what I need it for or, you know, com- the comfort it can provide, obviously. But like all my bills are paid. They're on auto pay. I don't look at them. I don't have to question whether the money's in the account. Um, being able to go on vacation. Um, I've worked really hard to have a good credit score now. Like everything. It's so, it's just mind blowing what could happen. Just me getting out of the way. I, it took me a really long time to realize that I was the problem. And when I started taking suggestions, even though I didn't want to do it at first, it was a massive relief. I didn't have to think like for the first six months when I was living in the house, I did not have to think. Um, I was, I went to class every day when it was time to go back to my job. I went to work, I paid my bills. I did my chore in the house. I went to meetings. I called my sponsor. I, you know, met my sponsor to do step work. It was just the next great thing. And everything was laid out for me. I just took suggestions and lived one day at a time. It really was that simple. One day at a time, get to bed sober, just do what I need to do. And my life just transformed. So, so you're in high school, you graduate high school? Nope. So, um, yeah, so I stopped attending class. Like I would come in late every day and come in high. And if I wanted to leave early, I would do exactly as I pleased. Like, for instance, if you were my teacher sitting there in front of me, like you could not prevent me from leaving. If I wanted to leave, I will get up and walk out of your class. I had a horrible attitude and I was impulsive and selfish and just doing exactly what I wanted. Um, and you know, my grades started to suffer, uh, sports, obviously they don't condone people just not showing up to practice. Um, and also I can remember my whole school life. Um, I'm starting to realize it more now. I was under a great deal of stress um that whole time i was at caravel academy going you know the private school i'm grateful for it now because i benefited immensely from having that education but i was under a great deal of stress the pressure the long hours i lived in claymont so getting to bear delaware every day and then sports and then getting home and um the workload and the hiding and the forging you know forging detentions and stuff because i was anytime i would get in trouble i would hide it um it just became school was incredibly stressful for me because I wasn't I was incapable of doing the right things. And I was always trying to hide, always trying to cover my tracks and stuff. And then also other people had expectations of me. And I never 
my whole life I struggled with that. I never, you know, I always thought a kid, you know, when you grow up, you have a dream or an amb- ambitions, like there's something you want to do. And I never had that. And I, you know, and I, I think, you know, I'm not an exceptional person, but I'm reasonably intelligent. I'm a capable guy and I had nowhere to direct it. I had no purpose, no direction whatsoever. And I didn't like that. And it was frustrating. And my dad, you know, he, he I was going to go to the university of Maryland and I was going to play D one football. And if <laughs> that was never going to happen. Um, uh, just frankly, and like my GPA was barely, you know, if I was passing, it was just, you know, a 2.0 or whatever. And, you know, I wasn't, I'm not that gifted physically. Like it was never going to happen. So other people had expectations of me and I knew they weren't going to happen. And I felt the end of high school coming up on me and the real world. And I was terrified again, like the same with the things in my past that happened to me when I was young or the things that shaped me. Like, I'm not mad about it. It's just what happened. The same with, I was spoiled as a kid, um, being my, my father's only son. When I moved in with him at a certain point, I moved in with him and he spoiled me rotten and he did it from a place of love. And he was a young man raising a kid doing the best he knew. how. So I'm not, I'm not blaming him, but I, everything was done for me. I had no responsibility. Um, I was totally entitled, spoiled and in a, incapable of doing anything for myself. So when I was approaching the age where I was supposed to go out into the world, I was terrified. And, you know, I was really stunted and, you know, abusing drugs and alcohol, beginning that at such a young age. I really believe in that arrested development stuff, because even today I am emotionally stunted, you know, in a lot of ways. I'm still in a lot of ways. I'm normal. A lot of ways I'm ahead of the game. But in some ways I am still very much, you know, stunted and, you know, working to catch up through that. Take us, you know, how long was it after high school until 20 months ago? Right. So, um, yeah, so I started going wild. I wasn't attending classes, started skipping sports practices. And then, um, you know, it's hard to it's hard to remember all the details because I have like 15 years of blurriness. But I remember I started started stealing uh, at first. It started because I had to get money for the weed to stay under the influence. I did not want to be sober. So it started with if I was unable to get money, like allowance or whatever, I would it started with stealing change from my mom. Like she had a giant one of those like five gallon jugs. She would keep change in. It started with that. Then progressed from there. I mean, at first. When I started really getting into theft beyond change, I think I was stealing from other people, but. Um, then it got to the point where I thought it was acceptable to break into houses. So I remember I was buying, I was in high school still. And a guy that I was buying marijuana from at the time, a couple of friends of mine and I decided we would break into his house one day when he was at work, he was, you know, a working man and had was always kind to me and, um, not saying it's okay to sell pot to high schoolers, but the guy never, he was always kind to me. And I decided when he's at work, you know, away from work one day, I would break into his house and I stole some money from him. But I was unable to kick his door in. So I ended up breaking a window. And in my panic, I started tearing glass out of this window. And my hands are all scarred up as a result of that. But I ended up in the hospital for stitches, basically. And they, I don't remember if they took sketches or if they take pictures, but they they took an image of my hands. And then, you know, I guess there was a police report that matched up. I believe they found a piece of my pinky in the gentleman's window. And they, you know, they brought me in for questioning. Nothing ever came of that. But Um, I ended up a few days after that, I ended up getting in a fight with my mother because she was trying 
she was trying to set some limits. I was living in her house and I was acting like a crazy person and she was trying to set some limits and I would not, I was, I would not do, you know, I would not do what she wanted. So she, uh, I said I was going to leave the house and she, uh, I believe my, my stepdad was trying to let the air out of my tires. So I could not leave the house. And I told him I was going to wrap the car around the tree. Um, and my mom called the police, you know, and so they were looking for me, I guess, to do a welfare check. They ended up taking me to Union Hospital in Elkton. I ended up running out of there. Then they, you know, the police caught up with me, brought me back, strapped me so to the bed. The first time you felt suicidal? I wasn't suicidal. No, that, it was more oh. of a um, just an anger. It was I shouldn't have said it because, <laughs> but I've made com- I've made comments like that since then that have caused me problems, too. Mm-hmm. Um. But no, I wasn't. I wasn't genuinely suicidal. I was just. I was angry, and um, I ended up in the Rockford Center in Delaware for a couple weeks. Um, I guess you know it's like a psych hospital, and the part I was in was for troubled kids, and was given some medications, and we were in classes. But I had. I did not care what they had to say. Um, I didn't want to be there. And as soon as I left there, I dropped out of high school, and. Um, began a lot of unpleasant years i ended up stealing i mean just to i'll try to uh give you the like concise version but i ended up stealing from my dad and it's all kind of a blur again like i said to put it in order chronologically but i ended up um i had an uncle in north carolina he works for the state department um doesn't live in north carolina anymore but he tried on a couple occasions to take me down there into north carolina with him and try to teach me He's also into like property development, real estate and stuff. And he was trying to guide me and teach me his business. And he was, you know, willing to pay for me to go to school and stuff. But I, I was incapable. I was not at a place mentally. I was not mature enough. There was nothing. I don't believe that there was anything anyone could have done for me. I had to learn the hard way. But um, I ended up stealing from my father somewhere around this area, around 18 years old, roughly um, stealing 500. I took his debit card. Went to an ATM, took out 500 bucks. He actually caught up with me and confronted me. Um, And I kept the money, but I was so ashamed and guilty. I estranged myself from my father for five years after that. Um, I pretty much estranged myself from my mom, too. I was locked out of her house, but I was breaking in, stealing camcorders. You know, I would steal. I stole from my mom, stole from my grandparents. Um, I started couch surfing, bouncing around to a friend's house. I have a... uh, my best friend in high school, it's crazy because my best friend in high school, the only one in our group that would not touch any drugs, wanted to drink, wanted to smoke pot, and he ended up being becoming a heroin addict. He's in recovery now, but it's just crazy how many people it has touched. But um, his family took me in, you know, a f- big family of limited means, and they took me in, fed me, clothed me, treated me like one of their kids. I did nothing to help them at all, did nothing to contribute, and then I stole pills from his sick father. And um, like got thrown out of there. But just the the things that, you know, things I never thought I would do and the things that people tell me today that you know, people tell me today, I could never imagine you doing those things. And, you know, it's not it's not who I am. I was just so sick. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, but it was just it was years of that. Um, I had a structured settlement from the car accident I got in. So I figured out how to access that money. I was supposed to get like 40 grand. Starting when I turned 18, I was supposed to get like $10,000 a year for a few years. I found out how to th- how to get that money, and I spent it all on cocaine. Um, ended up in North Carolina again with my uncle. Um, he got me a job with one of his friends. I ended up getting fired for doing cocaine on the job. Um, 
joined the Marine Corps out of, you know, more like a last resort kind of thing. I had never had any dreams of being in the military. But, you know, after a while, after boot camp in Paris Island, um, I felt proud. I felt good. Uh, you know, I um, I was clean and sober. Um, they sent me home for my 10 days of leave. First thing I do is go to my old friends and start doing cocaine and have, you know, I nearly thought I was going to die. I ended up laying, laying in the front yard, in a friend's front yard, cold sweats, dry heaving, thinking, great, I'm going to die on my 10 days leave um, for boot camp. My dad's going to hear that I overdosed and died on cocaine. That didn't happen. Um, you know, I ended up going out to 29 Palms out in the Mojave Desert for training. I turned 21 when I was out there and started drinking. Um, it's perfectly acceptable in the military. It's part of the culture. Drinking is, um, you know, it was, it was perfectly okay for me to get drunk after work, show up at 5 a.m. drunk for PT, go run eight miles, smoke a cigarette, then go on work the next day and repeat. Um, but, you know, the drinking got out of hand. I had no idea how sick I was. I didn't, I still hadn't, I, there's no way I would have even entertained the idea that I was an alcoholic, but I was. Um, so I'm um, at the bar every night or at the bowling alley drinking pitchers. Um, and then I found out that, you know, I came across somebody who had drugs and, you know, if you put it in front of me, I'm, you know, I was powerless. Uh, somebody offered me some ecstasy. I took it. And then, you know, I started smoking marijuana, the cocaine, whatever, like, uh, you know, at that point, um, it's just the, the insanity of it. Like I had no intention of getting kicked out of the military and didn't want to get caught, but there was no way I would not get caught. And, um, I did and was kicked out given a other than honorable discharge from the Marines. Um, I worked, you know, I, I just had a million different jobs. I worked as a correctional officer for a year, but then I ended, it was a really good job. I was doing well for a while, had a nice apartment. And then, you know, a year later, I am um, skinny as a rail. Um, I still have this job, but I, I stole, I'm stealing, you know, uh, Adderall from inmates being booked. Um, I have a sink full of dirty dishes. There's no food in my fridge. I have no furniture in my apartment. You know what I mean? Like living living like an animal, even despite the fact that I had a good job. And, you know, I would see people come in off the streets as as inmates, people that I knew. And I'm I'm there like a total fraud working as a correctional officer while I'm an active cocaine addict. Like a lot of that kind of stuff. I've had a million jobs. I've had a couple different stints, two different stints in college. I have um, two one year stints in community college and I had a three point nine five GPA. I'm not, you know, but I would get restless, irritable, discontent forget why I was there, get miserable and quit. Um, yeah, I would either quit, get fired, um, you know, looking for geographical cures, looking for the right job or the right girlfriend. And always, it was just always the same and never got any better. By geographical cures. And, and we hear this a lot, like yeah. I'm going to move out of where I'm at now and I'm yep. going to, you know, but it follows you. You follow you, right? There's a exactly. Wherever you go, there you are. And that, you know, I didn't realize that, but the, you know, maybe there's some merit to changing, you know, people, places and things. I'm sure there is, you know, cause like they say, if you hang out in the barbershop, you know, you're going to get a haircut eventually. So if I'm hanging out with people that are doing drugs, you know, it's probably risky, but. But as if you far don't as, deal with the internal. Right, as far as like the people I was hanging out with, they did not make me use. And the place I was living in did not make me use. And wherever I went, I was and able to find exactly what I wanted. can have different names and different faces, but there can be the same people, right? That is true too. Yep. <sighs> But everywhere I went, even the most remote places, I found the drugs, I found the alcohol, you know, and some of my poor friends <laughs> over the years, my mom thought they were bad influences and nobody influenced me to do 
nobody made me put any drugs or alcohol in my body. About 14 years of just, it sounds exhausting. Um, It really was because there was a time, like I mentioned when I was young, there was a time when I was doing some really, really bad things. And I was kind of able to harden my heart to it. And I was just young and angry and I, I didn't really care as much. And then I guess essentially I'm a good person. So, you know, I was raised right. I come from a good family. I have good like values and morals, I believe. But, you know, and I was living out of alignment with that. And, uh, you know, that caused me a lot of distress. And I remember reaching a certain point where I was really I was remorseful and I was ashamed of the person I'd become. I used to ask myself, like, what have you become? But still. And I started encountering some like um, spiritual literature, uh, you know, that really resonated with me. But, you know, so I started trying to act, you know, I started trying to be a better person, but I still had this addiction, which I could not have any kind of good life. You know, that was the main that's the main challenge of my life, as I see it. It's been throughout there throughout my whole life. Like it is the, the main obstacle of my life. And I could not. As long until that was addressed, I couldn't have any any kind of good life. I could not have healthy relationships. I couldn't have a healthy relationship with myself. I couldn't have any kind of job or purpose or you know, leisure activities, it, it totally consumes me and possesses me. And I've become the worst version of myself. And so did you go through treatment? I know you said you were working in some meetings from time to time. Yeah. So what happened was, um, so I was living in New Hampshire, you know, yeah, there's a lot in between, but it doesn't, it doesn't really matter uh, because all our stories are essentially the same, I guess. But, um, like I was living in New Hampshire and I was still doing the same things um, and uh, drinking and driving. I drank and dr- drove a lot. And, you know, it was so selfish and putting people at risk and stuff. But a lot of it, I think I just kind of realized recently is that it was, it was a place where I felt safe as as insane as that sounds like a place where I felt like I could do I could drink the way I needed to or use the way I needed to. So I did a lot of drinking and driving. And, you know, I'm not happy about that, but um, I'm glad. Thank God I didn't kill anybody. But my mother was telling me, calling me on the phone, telling me, like, you better not be drinking and driving. I'm going to call the police and, you know, telling me all day. And I just I was so arrogant and so stubborn and you just could not tell me anything. Um, And I was consequences did not scare me. Um, She did call the police and they were looking for me all day, but they ended up catching up to me. I was passed out in my car with the car running in the driver's seat, but I was passed out sleeping in the car and they caught up to me and I was arrested, got a DUI. And I went to my first inpatient treatment center in New Hampshire, um, the Friendship House in Bethlehem, New Hampshire. And I love that place. It was a great experience, but I was still not quite there yet. And I see that when I come now to inpatient and you could never, you know, I could never know. You could never know for sure. I've people have, you know, once they once it clicks and they get it. Um, I don't know, but I just wasn't at a place yet where I was ready. You know, I wasn't ready till I was ready, and then you know, that's just kind of hard to describe. It wasn't my time yet, but I did have a great experience. I learned a lot, and I got my first exposure to AA. So but see, I still, you were talking about. Yeah, I was. I was not willing to do the. I still. They refer to it in the big book as being beaten into a state of reasonableness. And some of the language in the big book of AA is perfect because like that is what happened. It was totally, you know, uh, they there's a phrase, the gift of desperation and that like I'm grateful for that today. And some people, someone who was active or whatever, someone might 
there are people out there who will not be able to appreciate that when I say that I'm grateful for being an addict and I'm grateful for that desperation. Like it was a gift. I kept doing exactly, I kept doing things my way, struggling on my own until I got so desperate and so much pain that I would do anything to not feel that because I was thinking about shooting myself. Um, and that's where I needed to be. That was that jumping off place. Then things got easier. Um, they say it's kind of a, whatever, a cliche thing or whatever, but in the 12 steps, they say the first step is the only one you need to work perfectly. And I realize now that it took me all those years to work the first step perfectly. So really, I, I was able to call myself an alcoholic or an addict before then, but I did not truly believe my powerlessness that it would always be this way. You know, they talk about that the great obsession of every alcoholic or drug addict that will someday, someday we're going to be able to figure out how to control it. Someday I'll get this right. Like I screwed it up last time, but I got it this time. It's insanity. But that finally has been removed from me. Um, uh, but yeah, I reached a place of desperation and was able to truly surrender. And, you know, they talk about in recovery of this phenomenon that we addicts and alcoholics have. I know I did for years. They call it the built in forgetter. Like I would have a relapse and, you know, stay sober for a couple of weeks or whatever and, you know, start to forget about how bad it was. You forget the pain, forget how awful it was. And you start I would remember the fond things, you know, remember the nostalgia and the good times I had and remember the comfort or the joy or whatever. And I would fantasize about how, you know, oh, it's Christmas or it's it's Christmas time. I'm going to go home and have a, you know, a couple of drinks and watch Christmas movies. I would build up this romantic fantasy in my head. And, you know, it was all BS. And so. One of the one of the many miracles that has happened to me is that built-in forgetter has been removed from me. Like I, I know, and I think it's you know they they tell us we're in the big book that says you get that daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my on, on the conti contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. If I do the work on my recovery every day, I get that reprieve every day where I, I you know that insanity has been removed from me. So. It's been working and I'm going to keep doing what's working because I don't want to go back to the life I had before. I was promised my misery could be refunded, you know. Take me to that moment. You walk in a meeting. You know, I think, you know, for people who haven't been there, for people who don't understand suicidal ideation and thoughts of ending one's own life, you walk into a meeting no one knows that those thoughts, I mean, our thoughts are private for the most part, unless we share them. Right. And you have this interaction with a woman that you say changed your life and, you know, saved your life yeah. in a way. That was, uh, yeah, that was super cool. That was actually in Chestertown a few years later. That was um, a local meeting. But yeah, at that point, that was, that may have been after I'd already come here as a patient one time, but I, I just could not stop drinking. And I, it was awful. Like I could not manage my life was in shambles. I could, you know, my work performance was suf suffering. I couldn't attend work. I couldn't pay my bills. I was like driving. I was coming to behind the wheel all the time or breaking down on the side of the road and, you know, coming out of blackouts and breaking down in my car. Or, you know, I ran out of gas on the Bay Bridge, like crazy stuff. And it was real out of hand and I was scared and I just could not stop. I could not drink, stop drinking. I was waking up, you know, I'd be vomiting in my sleep. Uh, I would wake, you know, drink and throw it up and have to keep drinking because I had to have it. Like it was not an option. So if you vomit, you just, you got to drink more. Um, it was, it was scary. Or I would wake up and not know what time of day it was. I was missing time, you know, large portions of days just missing. I was time traveling and it was scary. And these thoughts are flooding yeah. in mind. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm in there crying, drunk, and just, I, I had no idea what to do. I just knew it was a safe place, and they understood. 
Um, I had no idea what I was hoping to get out of it. I didn't. I still didn't believe they could help me. I think I just wanted to not be alone. And what does and, this uh, woman say that was so that you've remembered it all this time, that it was a pivotal moment? It wasn't anything major. She didn't say much to me. She was just kind to me. You know, she was kind. Mm -hmm. and she wasn't judgmental. And she made sure I was safe because I, you know. I think those uh, three things you just summed up so much about what people can do. Be kind. Don't be judgmental. And then make sure the person's safe. Well, that's why I, I, like oh. if you had to write, uh, I mean, like uh, yeah. a, a guide to helping people. I'm just so I'm passionate about this stuff because I, I don't know. I've hurt immensely. Like, I know what it's like to pray that you that you don't wake up in the morning. Like, I just wanted to die. And I can remember the evolution of my prayers. Like, it started out the foxhole prayers when I would be really hungover or hurting, you know, because I drink till it hurts. And I would pray, like, please just get me through this and I'm, I'll never do it again. And then you know, the insanity of alcoholism. I'm doing it a week later. So eventually my prayers got to the point where, uh, you know, I would pray, you know, please help me stop drinking. I won't, I swear I'll never do it again. And then I would say to myself, like, who are you kidding? You know, you're going to do it again. And then by the end, before I got sober this last time, it was please kill me. Like my life was a cruel joke. Like I either help me, I need to get better. Or I want to die. It wasn't, I've always been scared to death my whole life. And I have not, I still have not, you know, I still haven't fully accepted my mortality. And I think, that saved my life in some ways. Another thing God did for me to keep me from shooting myself when yes, Vince told me to do <laughs> You just outlined something very, very powerful. Be kind. Yes. Yeah. Open. Don't be judgmental. And just make sure you can do what you can to make sure that person is safe for one more day. What's amazing to me is, like I said, the um, falling backwards into purpose as a just as a result of being that. an addict. And now, you know, he says we're we're God's people. I believe. I believe he and I are kind of in agreement in this, that maybe some of us are put here to suffer so that we can help others and not to, you know, not saying we're exceptional or we're superheroes, but I believe that. And, you know, if, if somebody else, if all the suffering I went through, if I can then take that and help somebody else not suffer, then that's a fair trade to me because I know what it's like to hurt. I know what it's like to want to die. And if I can, if I can help someone get out of that, I believe I wouldn't, I don't have enemies today. Yeah. I have no hate in my heart, but I would not wish that on anybody. Nobody deserves to live the life of active alcoholism and addiction. It is How all many treatment centers and, and until the last one. Um, So I did one in New Hampshire. Then I did, that was in, the DUI was in December of 2015, so that would have been January 2016 in New Hampshire. And then I did three in one year here. But also when I there was a lot of year, there were a lot of years, as I mentioned, where I I didn't think it was the addiction. I didn't think I was truly an addict or an alcoholic. So I was looking for all the right the right mental health diagnosis. So, you know, there were times I was in crisis beds in hospitals or, you know, like psych psych stays or. I was in the you know emergency rooms. With I just think what you're telling us is so powerful, and and it gives a lot of hope to people, you know. And I I you know I go back to that not being judgmental, not saying well he's done this three or four times. It's not you know just having that openness that maybe this time it's the seed. Maybe there is still hope. Sometimes it takes a while for someone to process through these things. Um, for some people, they come through one time and, you know, th they get their life back on track or, but for others, this is a struggle that, and we wouldn't be judgmental if, 
in the same way for someone go back to your diabetes you know, if someone was struggling with getting their A1C and their blood sugars and, and they had times when it was higher and lower, and we give them grace to get that settled out, right. And getting the right insulin levels and getting the right diet in place. Yep. But when it comes to addiction, we can really kind of hold that over people's heads, the number of times that they seek help. And, you know, I think we're getting better as a society, as we learn more about, uh, the chronic nature of this brain disease and, yeah. and calling it a brain disease. But, um, you know, I think your story is just so powerful. And well, I'll share just one more thing that I think is really important because I know we're running the time went quicker than I thought it would. All right. So um, one thing I wanted to mention, you made some very great points there, but like I, um, I have learned you can never count somebody out. Like it was a process. Oh a process in my recovery of getting to the place where I was ready. So you can never count someone out. Some of the people that you would think, you know, they were had the most behavioral problems, the people that someone might think would never get it. Those people sometimes just get it one day. Like you can never count somebody out, but also it's important. You mentioned like the process. I learned the hard way. Everything I did was the hard way. And it was years of failing and failing and failing to get to that point of reasonableness. What scares me today is with the fentanyl, they no longer have that luxury. I'm sure you know, being in the field, they favor the term fentanyl poisoning now as opposed to overdose. So it's, and all the, you know, all the prescription drugs are fake pressed up fentanyl pills now. So So an 18 year old kid takes a portion, takes a part of a pill thinking they're taking a real pill and they're dead. There's no opportunity to learn. They're gone forever. So like, it is all, you know, we're not up against minutes, the same someone, drugs we were yeah. up against. 10, so these, these record overdoses in the United States, every five minutes, someone is dying of a drug overdose. So during this time we've been talking, you know, that's a dozen people that have died just in the U.S. while we've been talking. It's it's serious. And uh, thank you for bringing that point. And, and yeah, the, the supply is different. The drugs are different. This is a you know, there is no experimenting anymore. Um, it's, it's scary. Yeah. We're not bad people. We're sick people. And so many of the addicts and alcoholics, I meet people just like me that are just amazingly talented, beautiful, kind, you know, gifted folks, all different walks of life. It does not discriminate at all. You know, and it doesn't care about your socioeconomic status or your religious or political leanings, you know, I think when it really hit me, I, I worked, I was a counselor at a, a jail treatment center. Um, and we had 17 male inmates. Um, I went in every day and it was kind of like, go in there and do therapy, do something, you know, everybody's kind of tossing their hands up going, we don't know what to do. Let's bring some counselors in and, and let them give a crack at this, you know? And so we went in and, and I asked one day, I said, you know, kind of took a poll of these 17 male inmates at the age of first use. And of the 17, only two started using as an adult. The rest all started using mostly in, you know, at the age of, I think the common age was 12, uh, but it went down to age three when they were given drugs by family members because they thought it was funny to watch people run into the walls. And, you know, I think it's real easy to look at this problem and, and the addiction epidemic and, and just say, well, you know, these are 
these are people who are making that choice, but a lot of them made choices as children that have shaped their lives and their brain development. And, and to go back to being kind, not being so quick to be judgmental and just let's keep these people safe. Let's do what it takes to help them get help until they can make the choice for abstinence and to stay well themselves. Um, I just, I think what you said is so powerful. So um, thank you for that. And life is a lot more enjoyable that way too, because we, you know, everywhere I go, I, I talk about it all the time, but it's all love and positivity, almost without exception there, you know, there are some exceptions, but I tell my coworkers, I love them. You know, the people at meetings, my friends, like, I don't, I don't have to have that negativity in my life today. It's all good stuff. You know what I mean? Trying, yeah. Focusing on the positive, trying to grow and help people and, you know, Thank you, Tom. You're making a difference. I've seen you interact with our alums at meetings. Oh, I'm heavily involved. I maybe have, maybe have missed two or three alumni meetings since I left treatment the last time. I go to all the events I can. I love it. I know. See, I've seen your positivity and it, it's a real force. And um, thank you for that. And thank you for your time today. This is Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. So uh, thank you. This is recovery month. We want to celebrate that and, and just let people know that there's help available. If anyone you know or you need help, please reach out. Call 1-833-RCA-ALUM. You can call any one of our coordinators. They are amazing. Uh, Tom, I think you would agree. Yes, they are. A real special group of people. Um, you can call them. They will give you some peer-to-peer support. And... Um, treatment, maybe you just need some outpatient, some additional support in your recovery journey. Let's get you some help today. Reach out um, rcaalumni.com or 1-833-RCA-ALUM. And we wish you all the best and we hope to see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Strength and Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tap the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from our listeners and hope to reach more of you out there as we continue to share these incredible stories of recovery. The RCA alumni team aims to provide a safe, supportive environment for those in the recovery community, regardless of their affiliation with RCA. We host a full calendar of virtual and in-person meetings seven days a week, 365 days a year, as well as free sober events every month. To learn more about what we do, find us at rcaalumni.com. Remember, if you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, pick up the phone and dial 1-833-RCA-ALUM. Help is available 24-7. Listen to another episode now or join us next time for the Strength and Recovery podcast.